0: Good again, Welcome back to our Broken Heroes sermon series where each week during these last few months we've been taking a different quote-unquote hero of the faith and we've been examining them, right? We've been doing a, a deep dive into each of these characters and seeing it and realizing and recognizing that, man, these are people who struggled like us and we can see ourselves in them. It's easy to sometimes put people like, like Moses and Jonah and Abraham on kind of a higher plane, but, but we realize through this series that God actually finds people who are sinners, because that is the only kind of people that there are, and he uses them, and he redeems them, and uses them to further his purposes. So, right, life is messy, but God is perfect, and human imperfection can't thwart his purposes. Uh, Today, we are talking about the prophet Jonah and his struggle with selfishness. And to do that, we're going to zoom in just on one little part of Jonah's story, the very end of it. You can probably read through the rest of it during the, the few minutes it takes for us to to get going here this morning. It's a very short book. I encourage you to, to read it, but just to kind of give you a, a glimpse of, of what's happened up to this point. Uh, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, which in and of itself was a little bit strange because usually God calls his prophets to minister to Israel or the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom of Judah. But in this case, he sends them over to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which was this massive world superpower that would eventually destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. But God calls Jonah to to go there because... They've been committing all of this evil, right? Their evil deeds have come up before me. So Jonah is supposed to go and preach, but what does Jonah do? Well, he flees literally in the exact opposite direction. He boards a ship that's heading to Tarshish, and uh, God sends this, this big storm. It comes upon the sea, and the, the ship is about ready to, to break up. It's, it's so bad. and So the, the sailors there, they, they throw Jonah overboard, and Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. Here's a fun fact. Uh, The Hebrew word for fish is dog. So if you want to confuse somebody, tell them that Jonah was swallowed by a big dog. That's always fun to see their expression. Jonah gets swallowed by this big dog, and he, uh, he gets spit up on land again, and God calls him a second time. Jonah goes, and he obeys this time. He preaches the word. The people of Nineveh repent and believe in God. And that's where our text picks up this morning. And as I read through this, I encourage you to to think about what is going on with Jonah's attitude here. So so pay particular attention to Jonah's attitude. Starting at Jonah 3 verse 10. And I'll ask you to rise this morning for the reading of God's word. Jonah 3:10 through 4:11. When God saw what the Ninevites did, What they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, "And Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah and also much cattle. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the promise that your word never returns void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Pray that you would do your work upon our hearts this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So this week, as I was reflecting on the story of Jonah, the, the one word that kept coming into my mind was outrage. Outrage, because Jonah is utterly outraged at God's grace toward the Ninevites. That's what's, what's going on in this story. He was expecting full-on fire and brimstone and judgment, but God gave mercy instead. And it's interesting, if we go back and we look at the sermon that Jonah originally preached, we can actually understand his confusion because it seemed like a message of judgment. This is Jonah 3, 4, shortest sermon ever. I think I would not keep my job for long uh, if, if my sermons were this short. But Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not a lot of hope there, right? There's a whole lot of law, and that's about it. Now, the Ninevites were Israel's enemies. The city of Nineveh was actually the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And less than 70 years after the events recorded in the book of Jonah, the Assyrians, they're going to march into Israel, conquer it, and deport the people off into exile. So it's not just that Jonah kind of had a beef with these people. He didn't agree with them or something. The Ninevites were not your average, everyday sinners. Specifically, they were famous for their brutality and violent warfare. You can read all about it in the book of Nahum, which goes into great detail, but here's how another ancient source written by an Assyrian describes their techniques. He says, I built a pillar over against his city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. So I walled up within the pillar, some walled up within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and on others I bound to stakes around the pillar." Some serious William Wallace-style stuff. Old Testament scholar Reed Lessing puts it like this. He says, the city is the very symbol of utter moral degradation. Okay, so when you think Nineveh, think this. Nineveh was filled with some really, really bad people. The people were so bad that Jonah didn't think they deserved God's grace. In fact, this was the very reason that Jonah had fled from God in the first place. It wasn't that he got cold feet. It wasn't that Jonah thought, "Well, I'm woefully inequipped to do this task." or it wasn't that he was lazy either. Jonah fled from God because he couldn't stomach the idea that God's grace was for the Ninevites, too. He couldn't fathom how God could let those terrible sinners go unpunished. He fully expected God to go all Sodom and Gomorrah on them and destroy the city. But instead, what does God do? Well, He intercedes and He forgives them. How do we feel about that? Grace is an interesting thing, isn't it? We love it as a a theory. And we love it when it applies to us. But as soon as it applies to others, man, we've got some questions. When it's applied to someone else, it's enough for us to get outraged. Surely not that person, Lord. I mean, I'm all for love and mercy and forgiveness, but there's got to be a limit, right? You can't just go around dishing out love willy-nilly like that. They don't deserve it. They're, They're too dirty. They're too bad. They've done too much evil to be forgiven. God's grace always extends to the last, the lost, and the least, as Jonah knew so well. Jonah 4.2 says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, another translation for this very last verse, relenting from sending disaster, is God renounced the punishment He had planned to bring on them. In other words, God changed His verdict. He changed His verdict from guilty to not guilty. There's something outrageous about grace, that God would freely give people something they don't deserve. And man, Jonah... This guy can't get over it. Jonah is like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, which many of us know very well, right? The younger son goes off into the far country while the older son stays home and and does all of the right things, faithfully working for his dad, checking all of the good Christian boxes while his brother goes off and squanders his father's riches on loose living. Then he returns home, and his dad, rather than disciplining him, (laughs) throws the guy a party. The older brother is outraged because he thinks he's more deserving. Jonah is also like the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 20, 11 through 15. You know this one, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, right? The master pays them all the same wage, even though some have worked a lot longer and a lot harder than others, and they get upset about it. Listen to this, Matthew 20, 11 through 15, and on receiving it, this is talking about the wages, and on receiving the wages, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and Go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge God's generosity? Do we begrudge God's generosity? The big thing I want you to notice about Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites, and there's a lot of things we could observe, but I want to draw your attention to this in particular. There is a complete lack of compassion. Listen to Jonah 4-2-B. He's talking to God, and he says, You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Well, this word merciful here, It is what he knows about God, who he is, God's character. It really means a deep, inward feeling of compassion, most easily prompted by small babies or other helpless people. Jonah knew this is how God feels toward bad, immoral people. He feels a deep, burning, inward compassion for them, His heart goes out to them because he sees people lost and dead in their trespasses and sins who are on the road to destruction. If we might be so bold as to imagine God's facial expression, he's not up in heaven with his arms folded, you know, shaking his head. God is weeping. It grieves him. It grieves his compassionate heart to see his creatures go astray. He feels a tenderness similar to how a mother feels about her newborn child. And as I was reflecting on this, I thought, man, how does that compare to how I feel about sinners? About bad people? And what's your gut reaction when you run across a modern-day Ninevite? When you see a drunk stumbling around outside the bar... Is your first instinct compassion? When you hear about someone committing a heinous crime, do you feel compassion toward them? Or do you say, good riddance, they made their bed, let them lie in it? When you see someone on the opposite side of the latest political issue, maybe even someone standing for a non-Christian cause, do you feel compassion toward them? Do you see someone caught in the trap of sin needing to be freed by Jesus? I'll be brutally honest with you. In a lot of these moments, I don't feel compassion. What I do feel is contempt, anger, frustration, self-righteous indignation, even outrage. And of course, outrage against sin is always proper for the Christian. But whose sin do we usually get outraged at? It's not usually our own, is it? It's usually someone else's. We're so fixated on the Ninevites out there in the world that we ignore the Ninevite that resides in our own hearts and minds. The truth is that the only person whose sin we should really be concerned about is our own. And Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7, 1 through 2. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, Jonah's problem and our own problem is that so often we don't see ourselves when we look at the Ninevites. The book of Jonah is is really interesting because the ending for it, it feels like the author just kind of gave up. And he's like, well, and many cattle, period. There, that will send that off to the publisher. I mean, but this is actually a literary device. It's it's intentional because it kind of leaves you hanging. But there's not really a happy ending to it, at least not for Jonah. We we don't know what happened to him. There's no part two of Jonah. It'd be interesting to to learn about that someday. But, like, did he repent and rejoice in the salvation of the Ninevites eventually? Did, Did God work on his heart? I'd love to think so. Did he remain hard hearted the rest of his life? Did God open his eyes to see how much greater the kingdom of God was than Jonah originally thought? We just don't know. But ultimately, the story of Jonah is not actually about Jonah, it's about God and his relentless love, mercy, and compassion. He's always the main character, and ironically, the happy ending here isn't for God's prophet, but for a bunch of pagans who see the error of their ways and repent, respond in heartfelt repentance. Even the cows participate in the fast. I've never seen a cow repent. I would love to do that. Here's one last little tidbit for you. Jonah's sermon again, he says, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Most of your Bibles translate this little word overthrown or destroyed or demolished. And we might argue that in the end, this never actually happened, right? Nineveh was never actually destroyed. It wasn't overthrown. It was left standing that the physical city was. But on a deeper spiritual level, we might argue that it did actually happen because God was at work in the Ninevites to overthrow their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, to bring them to repentance and to offer forgiveness. As one source explains, the city has truly been overturned as it was proclaimed, but in its hearts and not its walls. It is no longer the same city. See, when we encounter grace, we are no longer the same. God overturns the idols in our hearts and replaces them with something better. When we turn ahead to the New Testament, Jesus makes a direct connection between Jonah and himself. This is Matthew 12, verse 41. It says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who's he talking about? Something greater than Jonah. Who's he talking about? Himself. Jesus. Right. In the, uh, the city of Gouda, Netherlands, there is a 16th century church that contains a number of beautiful stained glass windows. I only have the black and white picture. You can Google it and look at the, the full color. It's, it's beautiful. But there are these stained glass windows. And I want to close this morning by just showing you these two and then reading you a description of them from Reed Lessing, whom I've, I've already quoted from him this morning. Here's what he says about these two windows. First, the window on the left. He says, this window shows Jonah purposefully walking out of the mouth of the great fish. Jonah is pointing to a Latin banner containing Jesus' statement, one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah prefigures Jesus, the one greater than Jonah. And here's what he says about the second window, the one on the right. This window shows Jesus, the one greater than Jonah, emerging victorious from the tomb, having conquered death. For us. You see, God is loving, gracious, and merciful toward us, not because He sweeps our sin under the rug, but because of Jesus. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you know that He took your place at the cross? You know that he loved you so much that he died for you. Shedding his blood to cover our sins and failures and brokenness to forgive us, to save us, and to offer peace with God to anyone who will believe. One of the ways that he offers us this love and and mercy and grace is at the communion table. And in just a few moments, we're going to eat and drink the Lord's Supper together. You see, this morning, Jesus offers you more than just a a reminder or a sign, although it is certainly that, too. But He offers you His very presence. He is here in, with, and under the bread and wine. His body and blood are enough to cover you and me. And however far into Nineveh you may have wandered, God's grace is greater and He is always calling you back home, calling you to return to Him. The table is set. Come and eat. Come and drink. Come and be reminded of your heavenly Father's love for you. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor KJ. O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.